This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield. The late Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, sometimes just some enormous catastrophe <laughs> has thrust itself upon us and come to dominate our imagination. And I suspect it's that sort of territory that we'll be in today, Scott. Mm, I think you're right. There is something really interesting, though, that seems to have happened to a number of people who have been taking, say, some of the political developments, upheavals, moments of absurdity over the last, say, six years. I've been following those moments quite closely. Something happened, I think, for many people as soon as Russia crossed over into Ukraine at the end of February, what, February 24th. Um, so many of the names that we've been used to hearing in connection to, say, impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump suddenly took on a different resonance, achieved a significance dare I say, even a dignity, possibly a heroism that they didn't before. So we heard quite a lot over a period of a few weeks about the recently elected at that stage Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as someone who then-President Donald Trump was trying to, so the charge went, extort into doing something that would benefit his Trump's election campaign and be disadvantageous to that of his opponent, current President Joe Biden. And there's something incredibly offensive. I felt it even at the time. But there's something incredibly offensive the way that Ukraine had been turned for a period of months into a kind of footnote, an appendix to U.S. domestic pettiness, triviality, mendacity. When the specter of war of mainland war in Europe has reared its head again. So many of the things that we've described as being existential threats, harbingers of the collapse of democracy, so many of the things that really concerned and devoured so much public debate, did it strike you, have you felt at any stage over the last few weeks that some of those things that we got so het up about Okay, maybe they're not exactly trivial, and I wouldn't want to say that they're trivial. I think they're deeply serious. But it's almost as though between the invasion of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014 and now the invasion of Ukraine proper, these have been kind of bookending reminders of the horrors that are forever just outside of our field of vision of the geopolitical realities that demand a kind of moral seriousness and attentiveness that often flag when we're, uh, or wane when we're kind of getting so caught up with the show business of politics or internecine domestic rhetorical combat. It's almost as if this serves as this reminder that so many of the things, and so many of the ways, for instance, that we threw around language like fascists and Nazis and the resumption of tyranny. Uh, I remember David Runciman once saying that, you know, one of the many reasons he doesn't like referring to people like Donald Trump as fascists is that what are we going to call fascists when they really do show up? 
I don't know how you feel about Ukraine, Walid, and the way that this is relativized, many of the things that we were concerned about, or whether this places the last six years under a slightly different light, as if we were busying ourselves with, okay, I don't think trivialities, but maybe things that we shouldn't have gotten quite so worked up about as we did. I'm not entirely sure what analysis you're inviting me to offer here, because there's so many different ways I could take it. I suppose I tend to see it the other way, is in the exact opposite way, which is that what all of these trivialities, as you sort of suggested they might be, or um, sort of overblown rhetoric of our political debate and all these sorts of things, I, I would probably say it's more an obsession with the symbolic um, what, what all of that... Meaning that what we've been consumed with over the last six years has probably been more of the symbolic than, say, geopolitical realities. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, and there's so many examples you could use in capital P politics and small p politics mm. to illustrate mm. that. But, you know, I think, I think that was one of the really interesting things about the Trump presidency and the way that people responded to the Trump presidency was overwhelmingly the things they were most outraged about were the things that were symbolic. It was the things he said at particular moments or the pose he struck at a particular time or whatever. Um, it was a presidency that I don't think was hugely characterised by detailed policy criticism. Um, now, there will probably be a whole lot of policy analysts that are very offended by that statement. So I did all this work and, yeah, that's probably true. I think I'm talking more about the, the way in which that presidency was just apprehended by a, a distant public, whether in the United States or elsewhere. Um, I think there was something about Trump that was everyone responding to the spectacle. Um, and so if I were to ask people, just a random person who didn't like Donald Trump, give me three of his policies that you really, really didn't like, I, they might struggle. Hmm. Like more than they would have, say, in the George W. Bush era, for example, or if they're Republican-minded in the Barack Obama era. In fact, I guess what I'm saying is with the Trump presidency, there was just so much offence taken at the the person and the vulgarity of the way he conducted himself and the, the sort of restraints that he just refused to acknowledge mm. and dispensed with that a lot of the damage that he'd done in people's minds, I think, was in the symbolic realm. That's not to say it's unimportant. I don't, I don't think symbolic things are always unimportant. Certainly not in a democracy. I don't think symbolic things... I mean, symbolic things are often the markers that help safeguard the conditions of the possibility yes. of a common life, yeah. I think that's true. At the same time, I don't want to elevate them to being what is most important. No, Because I, I think that is a real trap in, in democratic life and especially in the life that's characterised by the kind of media landscape we have now where substantive things are just so much harder to get people's attention focused on um, than symbolic things that are easily digestible and clickable and so mm. on. Anyway, I've gone on that tangent far longer than I expected. What well, I was going to say is... Well, oh, oh, sorry. Well, what I was going to say is that the concern with those sorts of things, I think, was scratching at something, and that was that there is just this disintegration of the good things about the established order going on. Okay, interesting. And maybe the people who are mourning that would, in the very next breath, talk about how the system all needs to be changed or something, right? Which is always the... Irony of the Trump presidency, I think, was that suddenly progressives were wanting to speak in defence of institutions in the system, while those who signed up 
in partisan terms, as conservatives wanted to smash it and drain the swamp. It was this really weird um, switching of underlying assumptions um, that I think was interesting to observe. But you could probably say we observed a similar switch in the context of the Iraq war, right, where yes, it was conservatives right. who suddenly thought that invading a sovereign nation in violation of international law on a flimsy pretext in pursuit of regime change was the kind of thing that you should do. And it was people who probably identified as progressives who thought, well, this doesn't seem like something we should be getting into, this sort of weird foreign entanglement. Um, this is a, that's a very conservative analysis. And perhaps the exception of that is Great Britain, where it was generally conservatives who were opposed to the war, while it was the new Labor Blairites who were pushing it. Yes, but but then you also had those really wacky things, like genuine, honest-to-God progressives, like, say, someone like Christopher Hitchens, mm. who then slapped on himself kind of quasi-conservative credentials precisely in order to make the case for a full-fledged invasion of Iraq and the absolute moral political necessity yeah. of regime change, which kind of strikes but, but, me. But sorry, but I would argue that he wasn't slapping on conservative credentials at all. He was prosecuting a classically progressive case. Yes, it's true. <laughs> that, that's my whole point. And yet doing so in the, name of, in the name of conservative values is very, very interesting. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd need to go into further detail as to what, how he exactly justified his position. Yes. Know. But, I, but my impression was it was kind of, this was a humanitarian necessity, right? Um, anyway, all I wanted really to say here is I feel like there's this accumulating sense that stuff's just not right. Things are falling apart. And that could be economically, it could be socially in the, the breaking down of certain norms of civility or, or whatever it might be, the, what we consider to be hard resolved lines on standards to do with things like racism or whatever. And, you know, Trump represents the smashing of these things. Just the sense that it's all going awry. And so in that case, if, if you are inclined to see the world and the way we've approached politics in, the, in those sorts of terms... What happens with Ukraine? And, of course, let's throw COVID into that, right? Mm, that's right. Which I think is probably one of the most profound. It's like an existential shock. It's like, hang on, the world doesn't – it's not meant to work this way. Mm. Of course, it has worked this way forever, but we'd sort of managed to convince ourselves that it didn't. There was order that we had imposed. We'd sort of conquered all of the problems that the world throws at us, you know. And then suddenly it became unconquered and it became a wild zone instead of some kind of tame or civilised zone. Um, that was just sort of punctuated by things like terrorist attacks or whatever, but wasn't so fundamentally disrupted, right? Now, I think if you, if you take that kind of view, that sort of psychological analysis, if you like, then when something like Ukraine comes along, it's really just the extension of that. It's not, oh, suddenly here's something that really matters and we've been wasting our time with stuff that doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's this is the fulfilment of everything that we'd been fearing or intuiting was going wrong with the world. And so I think what's interesting about the Ukraine invasion, uh, as far as the way that we've responded to it, I don't even know who we mm, is in right. that sentence. That's but, one of our questions. Yeah, I guess it is. But let's just um, gloss over that for the moment. I think what's interesting <laughs> about that is the way the language has revolved around, you know, the destruction of a rules-based order, the violation of these sort of un unviolable, inviolable norms of international relations. And while I don't think something like Ukraine is the same as something like the invasion of Iraq, what's really interesting to me is the way that the language that surrounds Ukraine could so easily be adapted to critique the invasion of Iraq. So 
we, we demonstrated long before this that the rules-based international order was a bit of a mirage, really. Iraq had helped demonstrate that. We demonstrated that a nation's sovereignty being violated in a more or less unilateral way was not something that any kind of international order was set up to resist, particularly if the circumstances were right and the invader was powerful enough or well enough strategically placed to pull it off. We'd established all of this, um, but when it came to Ukraine, we sort of almost forgotten that those things or the absence of those norms had been established and we became shocked at it. Um, but it comes at the end of the piling up of this sense that things have been going badly awry. So maybe that's why we want to repackage this as something that is new, like the latest chapter in this new development, rather than the way I'm more inclined to see it, which is actually an example, albeit a different example and one that you could say is more egregious, but an example of things that we've seen, even not in the, the too distant past. I think I was with you right up until this last little bit and the analogy with Iraq. Let me just take a couple steps back um, because I think, I think you're right that maybe what might have been taken to be almost a kind of peacetime decadence, say, over the last six years in particular and then for, say, the couple of years before that, before the financial crisis, and then the eight years before that, before the, uh, the invasion of Iraq, and then the, fam- you know, famously now, the two decades before that, or say the yeah, decade before that. you got to throw in September 11, though. And, yeah. Yes, yes, of course. But we have these kind of these periods of, if you like, peacetime decadence, where suddenly domestic politics turns in on itself. Sometimes institutions, organizations, values begin to seem hollow. And it's almost like everything that happens happens so that people can begin gossiping about them or reporting them or sort of simply engaging in fairly inconsequential debate about them. Then this external shock arrives. And the reasons that we have, the things that we do, the reasons that we that we sign up to the values that we have and we place our faith in the institutions that we have, suddenly these things come roaring back. I guess one thing that really strikes me, Willie, is we, if, if we think about these twin shocks of, say, COVID a couple of years ago and now the invasion of Ukraine, Suddenly, the internal meaning of something like NATO or the EU, the EU in the case particularly of COVID and NATO now in the example of Ukraine, suddenly the internal meaning, the consistency, the importance of these, not just as the, uh, the figureheads of an international rule-based order, but something of real consequence, something of genuine meaning, something you might even want to say of profound moral or ethical significance. Suddenly, the significance of these things come roaring back. And, I, you know, you remember that, you know, during the years following the Brexit referendum, so much that we talked about when we discussed the EU was about how desperately reform was needed, how EU was never living up to its geopolitical or even its, in, to the minds of some people, its spiritual significance, the, its original or originary vision. And with NATO, yes, of course the U.S. can uh, opt out. NATO needs reforming as well. It needs revamping. Should we even disband NATO altogether? I think what's interesting with these external shocks is that the deeper meaning, the significance that they have, has been impressed upon us once again. And I think it does, while it doesn't consign the things that we've been talking about for the last six years to a condition of triviality, I think it does remind us that many of the things that we took for granted, 
many of the things that maybe we pay lip, lip service to really do have a substance that goes all the way down. And I think so Sorry, what are those, those things that you say we pay lip service to? What are your things like to? the EU and the idea of one being attacked means that uh, means that all are attacked and all come to defense. Uh, things like the EU's underlying principle of shared sacrifice and mutual obligation. I mean, there, in so many ways, so many of the, of the fates of many of the nations in the European Union under the thrall of COVID would have been much, much worse had it not been for EU-wide cooperation. And even now, I think the way that we're seeing the EU represent and pose the first and the most significant line of defense against ongoing Russian aggression and absolutely necessary and vital support for Ukraine, I think there's something about these events and this attack in particular that has cut through a great deal that we discussed about EU impotence, EU inconsequence, the, the, the fractured, the lack of internal value of the EU. And suddenly we're seeing that things like international cooperation, things like mutual deference and sacrifice, things like preparedness to engage in solidaristic relationships with other nations, even when it's not necessarily simply in national interest to do so. I think these have been incredibly important developments. And I think the final thing that really sort of strikes me, I, I, I understand the analogy that you're raising between Ukraine and Iraq. I know that there's been this double standard when it comes to either superpowers or egregiously flagrant nations when it comes to the inability of a rules-based order to place the necessary checks upon them. I think that's to a large degree correct. I think one of the things, though, that, that's, I guess, more concerning to me is that Russia has justified a unilateral invasion into the sovereign territory, although even that is part of their narrative, the denial, in other words, mm. that Ukraine yeah. is, in fact, sovereign territory. There's something about Russia's own rhetoric justifying its invasion, namely this is effectively a security measure. This is providing a necessary buffer against NATO aggression into Russian territory. And it's a way of removing, what is it, terrorists, fascists, neo-Nazis from power <laughs> in Ukraine in order to liberate the true Ukrainians who are themselves not Ukrainians at all, but spiritually Russians. I mean, there but, is something... Also, there was also, in addition to that, claims, I think, perhaps spurious claims, but claims of human rights violations of Russians in Ukraine. That's right. So that's another layer to it. Um, I think that layer kind of got shed <laughs> just before the invasion, but it was there as well. It is, it, it, a, it is true, but yeah. there's so much of that that then maps onto the US and the UK's own rhetoric when it came to the invasion of Iraq. So I'm with you there, but where I don't, there's a big part of me that wants to hold on to the geographic and the historical specificity of the invasion of Ukraine. I don't think you're engaging in any kind of sort of lazy whataboutism, but I think... No, but, I specifically said they're different examples. Yes, yes. But my point with Iraq was quite limited. But I don't think saying that the invasion of Ukraine exposes the impotence of a rule-based liberal international order. I'm not sure that quite follows, because if anything, what we have seen is a muscular reassertion of the true potency, of the real weapons at the disposal of an international rule-based order, the imposition of a crippling raft of sanctions with the speed, with the unanimity, 
and with a kind of shared solidaristic determination that we've not seen before in order to place what domestic pressure can be placed on Vladimir Putin in order to hopefully isolate him from the forms of support that he would ordinarily receive from the cadre of Russian oligarchs. I think there's something about the way that the EU in particular, with U.S. backing, the way that the EU has responded. And here's my question, Waleed. To what extent has this response, the speed, the decisiveness, the unanimity, the solidaristic resolve, to what extent has this response forecast, heralded the possibility of a new form of liberal international intervention in mass atrocities and local conflict in future. There's decreasing willingness, I think, and we've been seeing this for many, many years now. There's decreasing willingness on the part of many prosperous nations to put, quote unquote, troops on the ground, to become involved in local skirmishes. Sanctions have been used before, but usually the sanctions are we just won't sell weapons or we'll divert oil or we'll, we'll do sort of certain diplomatic back-of-the-hand slapping. But well, or we'll kill hundreds of thousands of civilians in Iraq. Yes, through sanctions that do nothing to deter mm. uh, the people who really do need to be targeted. That's exactly right. But by which, by the way, just for those who don't spot the reference, is not a reference to the Iraq war. It's a reference... To well before to that, the sanctions Madeleine that Albright's, yeah. yeah, Madeleine Albright's um, confession that she thought that those dead bodies were worth it. Mm. But I think what's what's interesting about this raft of sanctions against Russia, they're not sustainable without a very strong sense of international solidarity that everyone's going to have to wear a degree of the sacrifice because of the extent to which the EU is dependent upon Russia for energy the extent to which so much of the world's economy is bound up with and flows through uh, Russia. But it's also going to require a degree, I think, Waleed, of democratic legitimacy. In other words, people are going to begin feeling the cost outside of Russia of sanctions Mm. upon the Russian economy. Fuel prices. We we already are. Fuel prices. And eventually food prices. You know, Russia exports, what is it, one-fifth of the world's uh, wheat exports? It's, it, it's extraordinary. So here I think there's a new template that in response to a form of nationalist aggression that we haven't seen for a very, very long time, certainly not on this scale, there's an international raft of responses. The sacrifices that those sanctions entail are going to be shared, are going to be spread, and they're going to be accepted or not to the extent that nations around the world feel the requisite degree of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. In other words, these things aren't simply based on democratic legitimacy, but I think they must, for their sustenance, for their longevity, they need to have democratic legitimacy. So my first question, I guess, is if this is in fact a new template, crippling sanctions, sacrifices and costs borne around based on, in large part, the necessary degree of identification, solidarity with the victims, uh, in this case of nationalist aggression, then what is it that sustains that sense of solidarity? What is it that could undermine that sense of solidarity? In other words, if Ukrainians didn't look as much like us, quote unquote, as they do, is that solidarity harder to come by? And what would be then the barriers for that form of response to nationalist aggression or local violence or ethnic cleansing or genocide? 
what might get in the way of that same template being applied to other nations, to other conflicts, uh, even after, say, the conflict in Ukraine comes to an end. These are huge questions that I don't I think, think we're very good questions. with. No, I think they're very good questions. And my initial response is to say, I think this is a singular case. Is that right? Uh, because of a range of factors. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I think it is. I think if you had a different aggressor, you don't get this. Mm. In, in other words, a non-nuclear aggressor. Uh, no, just, I mean, Russia is the perfect aggressor to invite this response. Hmm. It's big. It doesn't ha command any alliances really in Europe. It unites Europe and the United States and countries like Australia against it. Uh, and it's not as big and scary as China. Hmm. Um, this is The Minefield, if wow. you've just joined us. <laughs> well, it is. Scott. I mean, it's the name of the show. Um, you can listen to the show on RN, as you might be doing right now, but you can also catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. As you can tell, with the way that we've conducted the conversation so far, we've wanted to cast a little bit of a wider lens. We do want to take seriously the specificity of Ukraine, but also maybe Waleed's right that this is singular. Maybe he's wrong that this provides a template for the way in which we might respond to future conflicts. Either way, we needed a guest who was going to be able to help us fill out that wider lens. Ayo Meros is a senior lecturer in human rights and international peace and security in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Ayo, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for choosing this important topic uh, for today. So let, let's begin with, I think, by any count, is the most remarkable aspect to the international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's been the speed of it. There's something about the speed, the extent, the solidaristic determination on the part of so many nations to address in a non-military, but nonetheless seismic fashion, Russian aggression. What enabled the nations of the world, certainly those aligned with the West, to respond as quickly as they did with a preparedness to sacrifice the way that they have and with the determination that they have? I think it's a, I think it's a very good question. And, and it ties, I think, well also with uh, you know, Walid's uh, argument about the singular case, or which I would turn into a question. Is it a singular case? And if so, what makes it uh, you know, unique? And so uh, there's so many factors that have influenced uh, what we have seen in the last two and a bit uh, weeks. Some of them you've already, I think, uh, discussed, and, and others may we may want to, you know, revisit or, or visit or raise. For example, uh, we have a case of cross-border aggression, uh, whereas in the last, uh, you know, since the 1990s, most of the wars and, and cases of aggressions were domestic. So all of a sudden, uh, and I would... I would raise the point that uh, you were talking about the Iraq war. I think you were talking about the second Iraq war, mm. but the first Iraq war was yeah. uh, perhaps even more resembling in, in terms of uh, cross-border aggression and the response of the international community, even though here we don't have uh, an actual uh, military invasion. But certainly the fact that we have a cross-border aggression is one of many elements. Another is, 
is the location in, in, at the center of Europe in NATO's uh, backyard, if you want, or front yard. But uh, also uh, there's very important underlying factors that have to do with, uh, with fear and with identification and with uh, the relationship and the mutual effects between media coverage, public opinion, and the interest of states. I would, I would go as far as saying that even in this case, each and every state that I can look at, you know, their response to uh, what is happening in Ukraine is first and foremost looking at its own perceived national interest and even more so at its short-term versus longer-term national interest because these can sometimes vary across uh, across time. So I'll stop here and, and, you know, wait for more input from you guys. Oh, but I didn't want you to stop. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because I mean, I just want you to develop those themes, really. Let's let's start with the question then uh, of whether or not this is a a singular case. Um, I suppose what that requires us to do is tease out what the factors are that have led to this unified response, and whether or not there is any other circumstance in which they could exist together again. I mean, okay. I'll just confess, I don't. I'm trying to imagine another possible invasion that could invite this, and I can't. And, that, and especially if it were to come from a nation, say the United States were to do something wholly egregious, which I would argue the Iraq war was, by the way, but we don't even have to enter that debate. Let's just construct a hypothetical scenario. Don't you think the United, a country like the United States has such standing and power and centrality and such an array of really potent diplomatic alliances that there simply could never be a response like this. In other words, unlike Russia, the United States is so well positioned that it could actually do anything. I don't mean, I'm not saying it will or anything. I'm not trying to play that sort of game. I'm just saying conceptually. If, if what we're trying to identify here is hooray, here is a mechanism by which international norms can be effectively policed without everyone going to war all the time. We have to consider the scenario where the one violating is not a country like Russia. Can you imagine those alliances being overcome to respond to aggression in that sort of way? I, I just can't. I can't actually conceive of it. I think I, I just think there are huge things you're leaving out of this, though, Willie. I mean, I'll let Al respond, but I, I, I would like to reserve the right to return to a couple of things you said, if that's okay. Sure. Look, I think I think if you I kind of identify the three, you know, key actors of media, public, and uh, and states or governments, and certainly uh, when in response to your question, certainly when we talk about international media, then then the West has a very important role to play here. And therefore, I totally agree with you. The ease with which our international media, and, and we are included in them, I guess, has uh, you know, identified the, the evil person, the one that we, as in we, as in publics, you know, all over the Western world and maybe beyond, love to hate in, in, in the form of Putin, has made it very easy to, to single out uh, Russia, if you are comparing it to the U.S., which would have made it much more difficult, indeed, to to uh, react in, in in the same way towards, uh, say, U.S.-led uh, uh, invasion. 
So yes, uh, in, in you, we do need an evil person. We need a, we do need a villain to focus or to channel anger and indignation uh, towards, and and that really was the case here. So so that's certainly the the case. The question, I guess, is also how do those three actors, how does the coverage align or not with the interests and with the with the considerations that uh, I will put aside the public for a minute here, but that governments and state have to juggle and look at. And, and I think here uh, that was also certainly a, a contributing factor. I suppose I've, I've got real issues with placing so much of the emphasis on the viciousness, the malignancy of the perpetrator. I mean, there has been something, I think, sort of drenched in bad faith about the way that Putin himself is being psychoanalyzed, is being diagnosed. I've, I mean, I've even been receiving emails from people saying that, um, is it time for us to revisit the case for targeted assassination of political leaders? Because obviously Putin is the problem. Obviously, if he can just be gotten rid of, uh, then everything else is, is going to be fine. I mean, you're both obviously right that there's something kind of peculiar about the aggressor here. But what really has... By which I don't necessarily mean Putin, by the way. Oh, no, no. I understand that. But I think so much the media's fascination, fixation on Putin has actually been almost entirely sort of... Yeah. uh, And and the dismissal of him is just some psychopath. He's just a madman. Yes, which is... Um, Whereas I spoke, I interviewed a former Finnish leader who'd been in negotiations with Russia Mm. and said, oh, he's very rational. Mm. He's very well prepared. He's very across his brief. He... You can have a conversation with him. He's not mad at all. Mm. What and he is is a czar. I mean, what he is is a czar. That's the, 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 the problem is we're kind of looking at him through, I think, a, the wrong frame. Yeah, it's the same thing, though, that we did in the war on terror. Right? Yes, it's you, true. We look at our enemies and say, well, they're clearly insane. Yeah. And therefore, what you lose sight of is any what the rationality actually is, which might then allow you to come up with a way of responding to it. Okay, but here's, here's my point. By placing so much emphasis, I think, on the malignancy, the viciousness, the evil, quote-unquote, of the perpetrator, I think what we're missing here is just how powerful the example, the glimpses that we've gotten into the inner lives, and by inner, I don't mean, say, the spiritual or emotional lives, but, say, the civic life, the civil life, the social lives, the family lives of Ukrainians themselves. I mean, the way that we've been talking about Ukraine over the last four years has been this seedbed, this hothouse of unconstrained, unrelenting corruption uh, that needs to be sort of dealt with by means of external pressure, by means of, you know, U.S. sanctions or discrete dealings with particular preferred candidates. The, the idea that for the last 30 years there's been a vital, vibrant democratic and institutional culture doing its own fighting against a culture of corruption and malign Russian financial influence seems almost not to have entered in to the public's minds. They, there's, there's an autonomy and a sovereignty of their own. But I think the other thing that we just tend to miss is there is something about Russia's reclamation of territory, the extinguishment of the life of a people that is an historically deep problem. I mean, so many Ukrainians have forged their sense of national collective identity through the forge of the memory of the great Holodomor, the, 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 the extinction famine that Joseph Stalin imposed by barricading Ukraine and starving to death over four million Ukrainian kulaks. I mean, there's something about 
the horror that was intentionally willing to be inflicted on that territory in order to bend it to the will of, at that stage, the Soviet Union, and then before it, the Russian Empire, and now a kind of renewed Russian Empire. What we've do, do you think though that's what that's registering in the public response? That, I think you're right. Like I think that's absolutely right. What but, what we've seen in a much more trivial way has been people leaving their apartments. Dear God, I can imagine that happening to me. A young right. girl sheltering in a train tunnel, serenading people around her with with a track to does it let it go? But let from it frozen? go. Yeah, from yeah. frozen. Thank you. Um, th- these are things where my God. I can imagine that happening to me. I can imagine everything that I love most be taken away from. I can imagine right. normal life there. And here, I guess, is, is my problem, Waleed. And this, uh, this goes back to something that Isle said previously. So many of the places that are victim to this kind of atrocious violence, by the time the media turns their attention there, everything has already gone to hell. Dying and chaos is just what those people, quote unquote, do. We have no sense of, my God, I can imagine myself in that kind of situation. I can imagine everything I love being wrenched from me. Whereas there's something that is so deeply, profoundly, both democratically, democratically and civically identifiable about the atrocities undergone by the citizens of Ukraine. I think there's been something in that that has so shocked outside countries into a condition of emotional solidarity. I'm not saying, I mean, I think there's something deeply human about that. I guess one of my ongoing ethical questions is, is there something that we need to learn then about the the way that the media more generally covers the conditions of normality in places like Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, uh, Western Sudan, and Darfur, the Second, Darfur can region? I just, yeah, okay. So I, I totally see the point you're making. And can I just make a quick observation before AL, I'll get you to respond. As someone who's working in the media at this moment and in some forms of media that are quite popular, so not you know um, necessarily doing in-depth analysis, what I've been struck by is that the note was fairly singular and repeated. So um, speak to someone who's terrified or sheltering or defiant or whatever, get their story, broadcast it, there's your moment of relatability. Mm. I don't think these were things that were produced by history or, you know, our history of attention to these places, not that we had a history of attention to Ukraine so that we understood normal normal life there as being something resembling our own, but we don't do that in a place like Iraq. I think the key moment was the moment at which the war took place, or just before the invasion actually happened and then once the invasion happened, where the people that you heard from in that moment were the people affected. I think that could have happened potentially in Iraq. I mean, Iraq's more complicated because we were the ones invading, right? But So that changes it politically immediately. But imagine if the media coverage in that moment, and this is unimaginable, but try to imagine, the media coverage in that moment had been interviewing all kinds of Iraqis who were fleeing or whose apartments were being bombed or whatever. I think that ability to relate to that circumstance might have stood a chance of being established. Um, Not much of a chance because we would have politicised it, of course, because we were the ones invading. But So in other words, I think the human element of that would have been bridgeable. I don't think there is a a history that prevents that necessarily from happening if you can show the acute threat, the acute danger in very real time. It's just that we have no interest in doing that. And I think 
and the political circumstances surrounding those places and invasions and our relationship to them in a geopolitical sense is just so radically different. That seems to me to be the thing that changes the whole editorial process that that surrounds it. Mm. Um, Al? Yes, I think I think this is a fascinating point which I research and I write about. It's the what I call the relationship between identification, empathy, and fear. Because I guess you you ask a question about whether you know if if the media was on the ground enough uh, or in in sufficient numbers in Iraq, what would have made a difference? So I I kind of recall back to the case of Rwanda during you know the genocide of uh, 1994 when in neighboring country uh, South Africa there were over a thousand journalists covering the end of apartheid but in Rwanda during the genocide on the ground there was never there were never less, more than 18 journalists and so the pictures and the images were very much missing but but is that the only the only yardstick certainly the fact that we have so much media coverage coming out of Ukraine, it has huge implications and huge consequences. And indeed, in, you know, in some countries, uh, say in Sudan, in Darfur, one of the first things that the uh, Sudanese government did was uh, prevented the journalists from coming in to cover what was happening. So, so it does carry a meaning. But then we have the question of you know, identification. How much do we identify with people that are different to us and how they live and you know and what they look like and so on and that's a really important question just a quick story some years back i went to the holocaust museum in washington uh, and i first went into the darfur exhibition which was empty and i thought well a quiet day at the museum but then i went into the holocaust uh, exhibition and it was full of people so i tagged along this mm. group of young african-american youth that were guided by by an African-American guide from the museum who was fascinating. He was really good. So I kind of cornered, cornered him after the session and I asked him, how come the Darfur the exhibition is empty and, and the Holocaust one is so full? And, and he's had 16 years of experience at the museum by that time. And he told me that Americans and even African-Americans identify more, find it easier to identify more with Jews of the 1940s than with Darfuri people because of the way they're dressed, the way, you know, how they lived and so on. So, so even, you know, even the racial or, if you like, element is not giving the whole story. And, and indeed, I think that there are some things that lead us to identify, and it could be physical proximity, it could be emotional proximity. But then you add to that another factor, which is the fear, the fear factor, which is so prevalent and so significant in the case of Ukraine because of the nuclear fear, escalation fear, expanding the war into other NATO country fears, uh, some damage to a nuclear station that there's many of in Ukraine that would lead to another Chernobyl fear. So a lot of fears that turn us, even in faraway Australia, into instead of being you know, bystanders to genocide, into potentially victims or would-be victims. So I think these combination of, of identification, level of empathy and fear have been critical to what we see here. And I'm not sure it would have worked as significantly or anywhere as significantly in other parts of the world. 
If you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefields. That voice belongs to A.L. Maroz, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I suppose, Al and Scott, this is why I say the geopolitical side of it really matters. A lot of these wars that we're talking about, yes, there are, there's a cultural distance and so on, and you can, if you want, argue a racial distance. Okay. But there's also a sense in which a lot of these places and these conflicts are not our conflicts. That's a, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, it immediately becomes our conflict because of our um, alliances with countries that are running effectively NATO. And so we are so, the degree of separation is, is so slight that it immediately becomes our, our conflict. This becomes Russia at war with the concept of democracy or Russia at war with Europe or Russia restarting the Cold War with America and, of course, we're deeply implicated in that. In other words, the, it's not just cultural proximity that matters here, right? It's political proximity or geopolitical proximity that puts this in a wholly different category for us in an emotional sense, does isn't it? Well, I think I think you're right. I, th- I think there's, you know, various layers and, and various levels of, of why we identify, why we care, why we don't. So so certainly uh, you know the the you know the buzzwords, NATO and you know and, and such are certainly uh, have a much stronger resonance than buzzwords or or other words that we are not familiar with from other political or geopolitical context in other parts of the world. It, but it just adds to the same patterns of, of behavior and, you know, same problems, if you like, that we are faced when we want maybe stronger, stronger uh, caring, stronger uh, pressure and stronger mobilization in, in other conflicts in other parts of the world. If I, if I may, I want to maybe highlight a simple truth that uh, most of us, I think, understand intellectually, but perhaps not at a deep enough level. And I may sound bombastic, but I think if we did, life on this very planet would have been, would have looked very different. And, and that truth is that th- there is no difference whatsoever between Ukrainian suffering, Russian suffering, Australian suffering, Syrian suffering, Afghan or Burmese suffering. Suffering is suffering. And at the same time, and similarly, there's no difference between if we, you know, go to the religious part of the story, there's no difference between Christian pain, Muslim pain, Hindu pain, Jewish pain. Pain is pain. And, and so and I also argue that there's little or no substantive difference between suffering caused by terrorism, war crime, or, or even genocide. Because again, suffering is suffering and pain is pain. And if we you know, we're able to understand that beyond the intellectual superficial level, uh, which is very difficult to internalize something like that, then things would have looked different. I think that's that's really important. And it's, I mean, you know, would anybody say that that's not a timely or a helpful or an important reminder? Um, I think it's, it is significant. And the reason I brought up Ukraine's experience of the great extinction famine is that there is something about that experience that does provide this invasion with something like a spiritual valence, the extension of an entire people. I mean, something, in other words, that borders on a kind of deliberate cleansing of land 
in order that that land might be reprepared, almost terraformed, for legitimate Russian occupation and life. I think there's something about that that does give a kind of spiritual valence to the suffering of Ukrainians. I guess this then is what brings me back to my previous point. I'm not saying that we need more journalists on the ground in places of conflict as the conflict begins. There is an undeniable humanity that one catches in the face, in the anguished tears, in the suffering of someone who is losing everything that they love, who is fleeing for their lives, who is trying to protect desperately their family or trying to find some place of safe haven. There's an undeniable humanity that only the coldest and I think most monstrous among us would, would deny. I think what we maybe don't quite grasp, though, is the depth, the nature of that suffering connected as it is to the sense of the value of what it is that is being lost, the sense of value to them. It's not just life. It's not just property, but it's also the connections to everything that one loves that gives life meaning. And I guess my, my, my underlying issue is we have an almost instinctive sense of what is being lost by those who are fleeing Ukraine. I can imagine being in that position. I can imagine fleeing my apartment at night. I can imagine the terror of having bombs raining indiscriminately from this. You can imagine these things. What does normal life look like in Iraq? What does it feel like in the Darfur region? What is the sense of what it is to lose everything that one loves because one has a sense of what it is to love those things in the first place? I guess my, my problem with so much of kind of war or conflict reporting is we only pay attention when things are already in the throes of destruction and therefore we have no sense of what it is to love that place, what normal life and the preciousness of the everyday might, might, might feel like. And I guess my, my suspicion, you both may be right, there's something so singular about this that it doesn't provide a template for how we might respond to conflict or atrocity in other places. But one thing I am sure of is that if there is to be a response that is based in enough democratic legitimacy and enough foreign solidarity that we're going to have to begin developing an accurate, a full, even a spiritual or moral sense of just what the normal, the everyday, the preciousness outside of wartime, outside of conflict, it kind of characterizes the lives of the people that have themselves thrown in a position in extremis. That may not yeah. be the, the role of journalists, but if the media isn't going to tell stories of normality, of the everyday, of the preciousness of daily life, then I guess I do wonder, you know, who is going to tell that story? Yeah, I think that point's important. I just think it's partial. What you have here is an alliance of a whole series of factors. Some of it is human, a lot of it perhaps, but some of it is also about big political and geopolitical questions of structure, about the legitimacy of different systems of government, democracy and autocracy about this, as like I was mentioning before, this concept of a rules-based order, mm. the idea of national sovereignty and the, the, the violation of it in a unilateral way. So there are big concepts aside the little human ones. And it's that, I think, that makes this a singular case. I don't think it's as simple as we identify with these people, now we feel sorry for them. Because if there were a, mm -hmm. an interesting That's enough right. or a complex enough political narrative surrounding that, we can tolerate the suffering of people, even ones that we identify with. Mm. Here, it's just that the political narrative that surrounds it is not one that allows us to make any, find any amelioration for that suffering. And I think it's for that reason that there's such a full court press. Right? I, um, I think I agree with both of you on two points. I think 
it is a singular case when we've identified you know quite a few of, of the special component of what is taking place but at the same time i think that uh, we are seeing you know a, a unprecedented mobilization and maybe by analyzing what is taking place and hopefully you know if the results are positive in terms of what what the outcome may be then maybe we can then take what has happened here and use it in a constructive way to first of all uh, empower publics all over the world to believe that yes there can be major changes being done and hundreds of thousands of people prevented from suffering or, for, or from being killed through non-military action by the international community back to you know the the uh, collective security ideal that created the united nations and it has failed so very often since then. So so mm-hmm. this is I think is really important there we can maybe find ways to harness the the insights and and the processes and the dynamics that are taking place in the last two weeks for the future. So that's one point. In relation to what Scott has said I agree and there is a there's a whole field called peace journalism that argues exactly that that we by stereotyping what say taking place in Africa then then we we see all oh, africa is associated with violence with wars and so on but we miss out on so much so peace journalism says no we have to you know look at what is happening and we have to increase the the exposure if you like of of other you know other societies or our society into what is taking place in other society and humanize them more rather than stereotyping them in that you know very narrow way AL, thank you. That's AL Maroz, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, it's a bit of a heavy one, I know, but um, I suppose that was the tone that the topic demanded. We'll be back next week with another show, perhaps a little bit lighter in tone. See you soon. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.